Back when I was at ZDNet, I once interviewed someone who compared how we handle airplane crashes to how we handle software crashes. And I often think about that. For the airline industry, convincing people to get inside a metal tube and fly them several thousand feet above the earth, well, that demands trust. And when there's a crash, teams of investigators swarm the crash site and spend hours reconstructing everything. Sometimes they even ground similar aircraft until they can diagnose the problem. Then the fix is rolled out to all the airplanes. That's why flying is one of the safest modes of transportation we have today. Contrast that with computers. Given how much we depend in our digital lifestyles, from banking to healthcare, computers are something that we should have fixed a long time ago. Should have, but didn't. Each blue screen of death, or each time a screen freezes, well, that should have been an opportunity for the vendors and others to spend hours diagnosing the underlying problem before moving on. It didn't happen that way. So today, we still get page fault errors. And there's no reason why we should still be dealing with computing problems from the 1960s in the 2020s. Some of this comes from our paradigms that we use within computer science. We need a more holistic way of thinking about the issues. We need a new paradigm. My next guest is challenging the existing models, and she's bringing in some much-needed perspective from outside of computer sciences. I hope you'll stick around. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from the makers of Mayhem Security. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Vimosi, and in this episode, I'm discussing secure by design and software resilience. If you've never heard of Kelly Shortridge, then you're in for a real treat. She's a senior principal engineer in the office of the CTO at Fastly. Previously, she founded a startup that was sold to CrowdStrike. Now she advises Fortune 500s, investors, startups, and federal agencies. And she's spoken at major technology conferences internationally. Kelly is giving a talk at Black Hat USA 2023. It's called Fast, Ever-Changing Defenders, The Resilience Revolution. And it maps to a recent book from O'Reilly Press that she wrote along with Aaron Reinhardt. Yes, uh, the title is Security Chaos Engineering, Sustaining Resilience in Software and Systems. And I was motivated to write it because what I see in the industry is kind of spinning its wheels for decades in some cases. So I joke that I'm bringing cybersecurity out of the dark ages with it. And in particular, a big thing I focused on was what are the things from software quality, all of the opportunities and practices that we have at our disposal to start infusing security by design, to create repeatable secure patterns um, and practices. Like what are all those things that we can adopt rather than just continuing to bolt on ever more security solutions on top of things? So let's start at the top. Let's define security chaos engineering in this context. Yes. So security chaos engineering, I've defined as the organizational ability to respond to failure gracefully and adapt to evolving conditions. 
there's the practice of chaos engineer chaos experimentation, which is um, basically akin to resilient stress testing in every other domain. That's my preferred term for it. But in the context of software, um, chaos experimentation is basically simulating adverse scenarios to see how the system behaves end to end. So this isn't just like load testing a component, certainly not something like unit testing, and it's not a penetration test. This is very much how do you simulate these adverse conditions to see how both the socio part of the system, the humans in it, and the technical part, all of the machines and services, how they behave. So that includes like Maybe we do want to understand was an alert generated, but we also want to understand, could the human actually take action based on the alert? Did they understand that the alert meant something bad? Really understanding the kind of the totality of the context of the system when uh, when we think about failure. So was it like fuzz testing on a macro level? Random inputs across the software engineering process? In some ways, yes. Um, it's not necessary. We don't want to introduce random input like fuzzing. Um, it's not quite as stochastic. What I I basically viewed as the scientific method is action. So we develop a hypothesis, um, like a classic one that probably your listeners will enjoy was from Aaron Reinhardt, who did a fantastic job cultivating all the case studies that are in chapter nine of the book. So he created a security chaos experiment, the first one actually, United Healthcare Group. And it was, he had a hypothesis that you know, like most people, you would assume that your firewall will detect, block, and alert on um, the event, specifically that a user like accidentally or maliciously introduces a misconfigured port. Very standard firewall stuff. So that's a hypothesis where it was an assumption that I like to say it was one of the, our this will always be true assumptions. We just take it for granted. We're like, of course, the firewall will do this. Well, when he conducted the experiment and simulated that adverse scenario, he actually found that the firewall only worked 60% of the time which is very contrary to expectations. So we aren't really introducing something at random. It's really we're trying to poke at those assumptions, again, that we take for granted, the things we always think are true, because those are the ones that attackers love to take advantage of. They love when we've overlooked something like that. Actually, the subtitle sounds more relevant. So let's start by unpacking the phrase, sustaining resilience in software and systems. Yes. um, So I draw on the huge, huge wealth of literature and scholarship from other domains in the context of resilience. And resilience means the ability to prepare and plan for absorb and recover from failure gracefully. To me, that really the underlying principle is adaptation, is that when we face evolving conditions, especially adverse scenarios that have come into our existence, we are able to rise to the occasion and adapt um, to be able to change ourselves. Um, you know, there's something very poetic where if you look at kind of the basis of life, right, is changing to stay the same. That's autopoiesis. So um, I view it as almost a very poetic notion for cybersecurity is that we have to embrace change and speed and evolution in order to succeed. So is chaos engineering related to threat modeling and risk assessment? Oh, absolutely. I think it's um, this is very much a core part of threat modeling. In fact, I would love to kind of upgrade the discipline of threat modeling to start doing a two-part process where you create decision trees, which I view as very much you're articulating your hypothesis about how your system would respond to attacker behavior. Then you use those decision trees to formulate the experiments where you're basically testing the hypothesis because you want to validate or deny it. And then you use that, refine the system, and then you come up with new hypotheses. It's this beautiful, beautiful feedback loop um, that really helps the companies who have adopted it continuously refine their systems and make them much more resilient to attack.
Okay, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around this concept. So security chaos engineering is more like a blue team exercise, or is it more like the DevOps part of the world? Answers could be either. I am a huge fan when I've worked with companies and um, even internally at Fastly, we've um, used decision trees. So I always think it's better for it to be collaborative. And in particular, you want stakeholders who understand the system in question. There is sometimes a tendency for blue teams, security teams to be kind of outside of the sphere of work. Um, They maybe prescribe how work should be done, but they aren't always in the flow of the work. I think that is often a mistake because what we want when we threat model is we want people who intimately understand the system, understand its nuances, understand the quirks of its behavior. Um, So I think we want those stakeholders at the table. I argue that a lot of DevOps professionals, they're actually quite similar to attackers. If you look at attackers are like writing software, like malware, um, they're certainly, they have the opsy component where they're looking to see like, hey, when we deploy that malware, is that changing, you know, are there any kind of like monitoring or alerting thresholds that we might be tipping over? We Are we tipping uh, defenders off? So there's actually a kinship, I think, between de- developers and operations folks and attackers in that mindset. So I've actually seen great success with using decision trees to get DevOps people thinking about like, okay, imagine I was disgruntled. How would I compromise the system? And they have a lot of fun with it, which is great to get them excited about cybersecurity. Certainly, I think if you have a cybersecurity expert in there helping facilitate the discussion and again, poking holes and coming through with their perspective, that can be valuable too, for sure. So chaos engineering is a way of introducing security concepts to the DevOps world. That is one of the benefits, yes. There are myriad benefits, but I think that's a huge one. And again, one of the goals of the book was really to get DevOps people, both whether that's a peer programmer through to like a site reliability engineer in SRE, like getting them excited that like, hey, I can actually make a huge difference in cybersecurity too, doing a lot of the things I already do, just maybe extending it a little bit to cover resilience against attack. Kelly mentions having a cybersecurity expert in the room. Well, not all organizations have that. So her book actually provides some recipes, even some exercises to help learn about security. I would say they're they're recommended practices. Um, I definitely intend for the book to be accessible even to companies that don't have cybersecurity programs. I know, especially right now, budgets are tight. It's difficult to have you know a bunch of cybersecurity experts that usually are quite expensive in your organization. So I tried to give just again a wealth of opportunities that even small businesses can adopt just to make a difference. And a lot of it is again secure by design um, principles where. You know, you asked a bit about kind of like, what does Fastly offer? Another thing we offer is a compute platform, which essentially think of it as like high-performance serverless um, that relies on our global edge network. Serverless in general, I'll abstract it away from Fastly, but serverless in general actually is great security by design because you have that sandboxing technology in place. You don't have to worry about maintaining your own server and like all of that stuff. You're offloading those responsibilities onto the provider. That's a great example. I have seen personally, especially startups, have amazing success where they can just tell their developers like, yeah, as long as you're deploying onto serverless, you don't have to kind of go through this security checklist. It actually offloads a ton of kind of security toil, which again, I feel like there are these little opportunities where if you just think a bit differently about it, you're able to just save a lot of effort in cybersecurity. What I took away from the book is that resilience needs to be a paradigm shift. It isn't like you need to purchase a new tool or that you need to adopt an entirely new schema or process. You just need to approach the problems with a different mindset. 
Precisely. And one of the concepts I have in the book is the effort investment portfolio, because I have a finance background, I think in investment portfolios often. Um, and the idea is that, you know, I present as many opportunities as I could in the book without it becoming a thousand page tome. You're not going to use all of them realistically. What matters is really your local context. Um, what can your organization do? Like for some companies, they're going to be able to more easily adopt like serverless. For other companies, they're going to be able to more easily, you know, refactor something into memory safe language or, you know, introduce like better logging or introduce distributed tracing. Again, it's you have to think about what your organization can feasibly do and consider like what's the ROI of that effort and how will it pay off? So it was very much intended to be like, hey, here's kind of the spectrum of things to think about. And now you can kind of go forth and choose for yourself, like how you're going to improve. And the key thing is constantly learn and constantly improve. Like don't assume security is just like done. As I say, resilience is a verb. Security is a verb as well. Um, we don't want to stay static. The the important thing is really that we're learning and adapting. The security development lifecycle typically includes seven steps, such as planning, analysis, design, development, testing, implementation, and maintenance. I personally prefer the Microsoft model, which includes training, requirements, design, implementation, verification, release, and response. Whichever method you prefer, security by design, well, it begins early in the software development lifecycle. Yes, I would say that it's very much about software design, um, software architecture. There are things you can do later on as well, for sure. Um, but I think it's the the great news is that a lot of this intersects with software quality. I personally view security as a subset of software quality, actually, because I view software quality as just, is the system behaving as it intends? Part of that is like, well, an attacker is very much not something that we intend in our system. So it's just part of this whole subset. So a lot of the things we want to do to achieve software quality, we can use to achieve kind of resilience against attack as well. So I think this is, again, something that, for instance, when I've talked to um, very senior like infrastructure leadership, not cybersecurity at all, when they learn like, oh, immutable infrastructure actually helps our resilience against attack, we were just using it because it's more reliable. But actually, it means that attackers can't persist on our systems. That's great news. And I think there are a lot of opportunities like that where it's something the engineering team maybe wants to do anyway. And with that cybersecurity benefit, maybe now you can join forces and get that, you know, upper echelon leadership to buy in. Yeah, but how does that even work in the real world? In the real world, it's definitely messy. Every organization's different. I would say testing is often um, neglected. You know, there are often unit tests, tests at best and not integration tests. As I talk about in the book, integration tests are actually a boon for cybersecurity, but still often overlooked. So I agree, There's it's a lot more kind of circular and what Ouroboros in nature a lot of the time. Um, so in the real world, there's certainly the part where when you're starting a system from scratch, you have like a design phase. Often when you're iterating on the system as well, you have some sort of like design review for new features. Sometimes you don't, depending on the company, which that can be a problem as well. Um, obviously, you have developers writing code. Hopefully, they're using something like source code management to make sure everything gets merged in cleanly. There aren't conflicts. You have version control, all that good stuff. Again, there's generally some sort of testing. Sometimes it's check the box, more like unit testing. Then there are like a huge number of ways that you can deploy the software. There's still very much manual deploys, which terrify me. I actually wrote another blog post earlier this year where it was 69 ways to um, 
screw up your deploys, shall we say. Um, and it's just, there are so many ways it can go wrong. So I definitely recommend automating deployments as much as possible. There are a lot of companies who have done that and adopted things like CI CD pipelines, which are great. Uh, the CD part is harder than the CI part. And then once you're delivering the software in production, when it's reaching end users, you have a whole host of challenges. And that's Fastly's Heritage is actually helping with some of those challenges on the content delivery side, making sure things are reliable, uh, making sure that you know you don't experience downtime. Then there's also all the database stuff um, or stateful stuff, as I like to put it, where you know databases are just hard, right? You have logging, you have monitoring, you have incident response. It's just like it is so complicated. Um, and I tried to help make it a little feel a little less complicated in the book and again provide opportunities. But I think the key thing, no matter where you're looking across the software delivery lifecycle, is things have to be repeatable because humans make mistakes. We shouldn't get mad when humans don't repeat the same action perfectly every time because that's not what humans are best at. Humans are best at adapting. So if we can automate the things that need that repetition, it's only going to benefit us from both a kind of reliability and security perspective. Right. In security, it's often only as strong as its weakest link. Yes. I, I don't always agree that security is only as strong as its weakest link because that's often used against humans. It's often to decry like, oh, well, humans, you know, again, they make mistakes all the time. So what hope is there? And I think that's not the healthiest attitude, but integration testing. So a lot of failure we see and what attackers look for, because they think in systems and a lot of cybersecurity th teams think in components, attackers look for the interaction between things like ransomware is essentially an attack against the fact that you have a lot of resources that are all interconnected and interact with each other and generally have like full permissions with each other. So that's part of how you can have that cascading failure. Same thing, attackers will get access to, you know, maybe a server that doesn't matter much. They immediately look for, okay, what other access can I gain? What can I pivot to? How can I migrate? So they're always thinking about how things are interconnected and interacted. And integration tests if you don't want to you know, leap right into chaos experiments, integration tests to me are just before you even have application security testing, you need your integration tests. Because um, there was an example of the, um, there was a vulnerability in Oracle cloud infrastructure, which I talk about in the book, um, where basically you could like access another volume through basically like a really unintended interaction um, that to their credit, Oracle fixed super quickly. We love to see it. Um, but that's something that could be caught with an integration test. And there are a lot of things where like multi-tenancy can fall over in a kind of cloud case or, you know, oh, you may have a perfectly secure, you know, server, perfectly secure database, but how they talk to each other, something is messed up in the implementation. An integration test can catch those kind of things. So it really helps us better understand how things interact. Are they interacting as intended? And make sure that the attackers don't find those snafus first. So going back to the definition of resilience, we have already talked a little bit about the failure aspect of it. Is it that we're not trained to be thinking about that? That we just think about the code always working in a perfect world, so we're never looking at the disaster scenarios that could happen? Well, I think developers are definitely conscious of what can go wrong from, again, a performance perspective. Most any developer probably at least a year in has made some sort of mistake or seen something go quite wrong. I do think with the cybersecurity industry, there is a very ingrained thing in just the industry culture that we need to prevent failure at all costs, that if an attack happens at all, then it's game over, we failed. And I think that's not a particularly constructive mindset because you can't stop failure from happening. Um, it's impossible in any sort of complex system. Instead, though, we can make it so, okay, an attacker gains access to, let's say, again, a serverless function. 
they can't really do anything with it. They can't modify it. They can't use it to access anything else. We can immediately kill the function and restart it because we see like something's going wrong. The impact is minimal. So yes, an attack happened, but we actually won because the attacker wasn't able to succeed. And they had to like either move on to a different company or think through like, okay, what am I going to do instead? So I think it's starting to see victory as minimizing impact is such an important shift. And I think it's again, much healthier. It's Hopefully we won't feel so downtrodden like, oh, this attack happened. It's like, yeah, the attacker got nothing. Like they didn't gain anything from it. And we didn't experience any disruption to our service. No data was leaked. Like all of that should be seen as a victory, especially in my view. It's like if you're able to keep even impact the same as once last year, but your revenue grew like 5%, 10%, that's a win. It means that you're succeeding security-wise, but we don't always think about it that way today. And I'm hoping to help change that. Okay, what originally drew me to the interview with Kelly was a blog that she wrote on Sun Tzu and the whole metaphor of war that exists within cybersecurity. That personally resonated with me. It always strikes me as rather binary. You're either good or you're bad. And you're either a white hat or you're a black hat. And yet, our favorite response whenever someone asks us a security question is, it depends. So it isn't binary. There's lots of nuances, lots of shades of gray. Kelly talks about how cybersecurity is always trying to find the victories. And that isn't always the work of security. So yeah, we need to reframe so that it's not a war per se. Sure. So one thing I was very careful about in the book and in general is not to frame things like a battle or use military lingo to use terms like nurturing instead, borrowing from ecology and nature, like how do we empower people and just a little more positive of language. Um, the problem with some of the military and war lingo is that it can quickly become more at war with our users and the humans that are involved in the system. Um, and it makes the stakes feel much higher, I think, than they are, except in, you know, I'm going to remove cases where in cybersecurity, it's a nation state game and it's literally war, right? I'm talking about most corporations and commercial use cases. So in that case, we really want to view it as again, like how do we nurture the humans in our systems to adapt? How do we make sure that the secure way is the easy way? How do we work with human behavior rather than against it? And the thing that I found when I was rereading re Sun Tzu, because um, I was reminded of how is a trend even less than a decade ago to just have a bunch of Sun Tzu quotes in your cybersecurity presentation at conferences. So I reread it and I was like, wait a second. Actually, what he's talking about in terms of like fundamental blunders are a lot of the things that cybersecurity industry does today. So things like ignoring um, the context of your users in the context of your company, ignoring the fact that, you know, he refers to it as like the conditions like the shoulders face, right? Um or basically, you don't want to make them feel like they're betrayed because you're asking them to do something impossible. But we often ask that of our users. We expect them to pay perfect attention to every email and every link. It's like, that's that's impossible. You can't expect users to pay 100% attention all the time. The other thing he says is like, if you stay rigid, you can't adapt and that's going to hurt you in battle. And so basically what I countered with is what Sun Tzu is actually saying is basically we need to understand users' local context. We need to respect um, the fact that 
you know, human attention is finite. We need to respect the fact that they have incentives like shipping code or closing deals. We shouldn't expect security to be their number one priority. And importantly, we need to preserve that capability for adaptation if we want to outmaneuver attackers. If we stay rigid, attackers won't be rigid. They'll be more flexible and they'll be able to outmaneuver us. So, and actually my black hat talk is basically about how we can borrow attacker advantages like being nimble, empirical, and curious and harness that for an advantage in uh, defense as well. Kelly notes that Sun Tzu is mentioned in virtually every cyber presentation. I know, I've seen a lot of those talks, and frankly, mentioning Sun Tzu, that's not original. So, Kelly quotes various literary sources within her book, and it's refreshing to see the humanities being represented in InfoSec. What I joke is, you know, um, like many... Uh, who have a liberal arts degree. Um, it was rather pricey. So I'm trying to, you know, get my money's worth, but also I'm just like a huge literary nerd. Um, I just devour fiction. Um, and I think there's there's so much that the world outside of cybersecurity can teach us, whether again, I draw on complex systems domains like healthcare, aerospace, urban water systems, you know, the uh, diversity in birds even comes up in the book. Like there, there's some random places that can really inspire us from a cybersecurity perspective. And I do think there are literary aspects that can inspire us as well, because again, resilience, if you look at it, is part of the reasons why humanity has succeeded. You know, it's part of the reason why we have the technology we have today is because of adaptation and being able to adapt to these evolving conditions. So again, I do think there's kind of this poetic heart to resilience that I hope, again, makes cybersecurity maybe a little less dour and a little more like, yeah, you know what? We can do it, right? That would be a nice, refreshing change. So yeah, getting to that nimbleness, we always romanticize how the attacker only has to be right once. I mean, they've got all this flexibility. They can try whatever they want, when in reality, it's not particularly true. Yeah, I totally agree. It's a, a myth. Attackers have to get right once and then they have to get right every time after that because every single move they make after that point is uh, is potential for being detected and kicked out by defenders. So I think a key part of it is, again, what we're talking about is that adaptation. Like some of the things I'll be talking about in my Black Hat talk and I've already talked about in the book include things like modularity by design, just making sure you can fail independently, change independently, things like those um, CICD pipelines, things like infrastructure's code, making sure that you can, um, I mean, infrastructure's code has a ton of benefits for cybersecurity, but like getting stronger change control, being able to patch more quickly. Um, things like, again, we talked about isolation, some of the new like WebAssembly stuff that is like super cool and I'm privileged enough to get to work on it at Fastly. And it's even down to like, what system signals do we collect? And a lot of those overlap with reliability signals. So we're not always looking at things like accept queue depth as a security signal today, but that can actually help us be a little more nimble because we start getting more of those leading indicators of compromise that can help us respond more quickly to. And overall, a systems thinking, again, thinking about the interactions between things is also going to let us be more nimble, um, lets us be more curious. And it also, if you combine it with things like chaos experiments, what I call resilient stress tests, um, it allows you to be more empirical, which is a key advantage attackers have today, too. I wonder if Kelly had any ideas how we even got down this path. I mean, is it the fact that it was largely a male culture to begin with in computers and cybersecurity, or that the internet started out as a military project, hence the language that we discussed? It's interesting. I've been trying to look at kind of the origins of it from an almost anthropological or sociological perspective. It is interesting because up until kind of the mid 80s, and this might be a historical 
like rabbit hole for your listeners. But up until the 80s, there was very much this focus on how do we create security by design? I think actually over-indexing on things like formal methods a bit, but you know, math is cool. And so people like that. Um, and you saw a lot of it concentrated in like the intelligence community um, and saw a lot of it concentrated in kind of like hardcore computer science, like people who just deeply understood computers at a very technical level. And then at a certain point, um, you know, I'm not sure I can identify all the contributing factors, but the long and short is funding dried up for a lot of that activity and enter uh, the internet. And suddenly you had the emergence of kind of like the network security companies and certain then the endpoint security companies and antivirus. And there was this growing need for cybersecurity professionals because attacks were starting to emerge and happen. The interesting thing is a lot of cybersecurity people at the time, basically because of the way it looked, came up through more of the like network side of things. They learned how to like work with the cybersecurity tools because that was really the challenge at the time. People stopped really thinking about the security by design. It was, you know, out of fashion um, in a certain sense. And I think from there, because of it was almost like the the emergence of the cybersecurity industry was very concentrated just on the vendor side of things rather than like the computer science part. I think that kind of ran rampant for quite a while. Um, and I think there's the other thing is there's um there was still a counterculture to it. It was not something that was mainstream. Very few people knew about, you know, cybersecurity. And even today, a lot of people think you're basically speaking techno babble when you talk about cybersecurity stuff, right? And so there was almost like this clickishness or like, oh, we're the cool kids who are kind of away from everyone else. And I think a bit of self-selection in some cases of like, well, we're the protectors and we know what's best for you. Again, that might've worked for a while. I think we're in a very different world where there's just more collaboration now. We do have the opportunity with some recent innovations uh, more on the software and infrastructure side to start investing in security by design. So I think it's just, you know, a lot of strategies, this is actually a core part of psychological resilience. Strategies that help you during times of stress and turmoil may actually sabotage you when times are good. It may keep you rigid from pursuing like better opportunities. And I think that's kind of what's happening now is we just, we need to get a little more open and flexible and adaptive because we have all these new opportunities now. Um, so that's my very long kind of over analysis of why we might be in this position today. I wanna go back to Secure by Design. CISA defines it as products where the security of the customers is the core business requirement, not just a technical feature. Well, haven't we been doing that all along? That's a great question. I think I love all your questions around secure by design. I'm a huge fan of that. And certainly resilience. Um, actually, my black hat talk, I refer to it as a resilience revolution because I do think, like you said, it's a paradigm shift. I think it's more inclusive kind of across teams. And it really tries to break down those silos that we see in cybersecurity to make it, like you said, so anyone who's just interested in computers and making software systems better can contribute towards making cybersecurity better. Um, I'm in the midst of uh, finalizing my black hat talks. So I'm like very immersed in it and very excited because it's spinning a lot of the kind of folk wisdom we have, like attackers are fast and they're ever evolving. It's like, we can be that too. And kind of talking about all the ways we can make that happen is a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that. I hear from a lot of people that secure by design doesn't necessarily mean in the beginning. Things, products and projects, they're often in progress at any given moment. You never actually see the software development lifecycle in its totality. 
Usually, you're just a part of it, and you sort of understand how that part fits into the larger whole. I can see security by design as phrased differently, or maybe it can be made more accessible to people who are in the midst of working right now on projects. Yeah, I do like how CISA frames this as both by design and by default, because I think that's a powerful way to indicate basically we want the secure way to be kind of like the easy and fast way. There's something in the book I created called the ice cream cone hierarchy of security solutions, which basically says that when we talk about security by design, it's really being able to either eliminate hazards by design or reduce like hazardous, hazardous methods and materials. I'm borrowing lingo from physical safety. But a hazardous method, for instance, is the manual deployments we talked about. That's something incredibly hazardous. So if you're able to automate part of that process, you've reduced hazardous methods by design. You've made it so that the design of the system now has something that's a little um, little less prone to like failure, which is which is what we want. Another example is a lot of companies wrestle with like uh, at least companies that have been around a while. They have a lot of C code. C code, I've analogized to lead, like it's very useful, but it's poisoning us over time. Um, you know, the hotness right now is Rust. It, it can be very difficult to refactor C code into Rust. There aren't that many Rust developers, but there are approaches like WebAssembly where there's a project called RLbox where you can actually wrap your C code in, in essence, a WebAssembly wrapper. And um, you don't have to worry about like vulnerabilities or like memory corruption issues in your C code as much. Like there are techniques to make the C code less stinky, shall we say. And I think there are a bunch of things like that, again, where if you start thinking about things as like, okay, it's a hazardous method or material, how do we either remove it entirely or how do we at least reduce the hazard associated with it? And again, that can be something that you don't design from the beginning. Like very few people are starting a design from scratch. Um, I'm a huge fan of isolation as an example of this. Again, you could have, you know, your monolith service. If you start peeling off, let's say the billing service into its own microservice, that's the only separate service you have. You put that in its kind of isolated um, sandbox, however that looks, whether that's serverless, a VM, a container, you can now make sure that only the billing service has access to like whatever payment data or financial aid and the rest of your monolith doesn't. You've reduced the hazard there. So if the attacker gets access to all the other services, they still can't access that billing data. Mm-hmm. They now have to compromise the billing service instead that's well sandboxed. That's a huge win. And yes, that involves some effort, but it's certainly a lot better than trying to break apart your monolith entirely, right? So it's thinking through like, what are the most hazardous things and what can we do given the resources we have um, to start either eliminating or reducing those hazards by design. Kelly's book has a lot of examples which any organization can use. What would a chaos experiment look like? And what would a stress test look like? So I mentioned the one with um, Aaron, um, which I love because the firewall only working 60% of the time is like very memorable. But in chapter nine in the book, we have a bunch of different case studies. Um, One I know is Verizon where they they do something very clever, which is they... um, basically validate that their security controls are working as intended by introducing like a um, like malicious workload and then like a legitimate workload with whatever changes have been introduced. So you can basically constantly validate like, okay, our security controls are working as expected. You know, we have one from Open Door, which talks about experiments for logging. Um, so 
there, the Census Bureau, um, I think, had an incident quite a few years ago now where their logs were being sent to a SIM that had been decommissioned for, I think, over a year, which is kind of a nightmare scenario, right? Like any anyone across the software spectrum just finds that horrifying, right? That's clearly a mistake. And so making sure that you have alerting for stuff like that, like Open Door talks about how logging pipelines are basically our lifeblood, right? And so if you disrupt those logging pipelines and see how the end-to-end system behaves, you can make sure when a real incident happens, you have that data that you need. Um, so there's there's a whole wealth of stuff. I even built a chaos experiment that strips um, cookies and forces cross-site origin requests Um I built it on Fastly's like compute platform. So it's really nice. You can insert it in front of a service, doesn't disrupt users. And it's a lot of fun. It's like a small, simple experiment, but we all just assume that our website's going to require cookies, especially a login page. We assume that it's going to block cross-origin requests, but it's good to verify it anyway. So those even small experiments, again, really help us get empirical. Finally, I get a lot of questions from people who are asking about transitioning into security. Personally, I encourage anybody to take up security. If you've got a background as a nurse or perhaps even running an assembly line or so forth, you have a different perspective than the people who've been coding all their lives. It's a very different world. So does InfoSec, does it need that diversity? Having as many lenses into how systems behave is so valuable for cybersecurity. I very fundamentally believe that it's difficult for us to protect a system that we don't understand. And it's very difficult, given the complexity of our systems today, it's very difficult for a single human to understand that system too. So we need kind of like a group of people who all have those different perspectives, whether again, programmer, SRE, cybersecurity person. I also think that if you are someone who understands things like, again, automated deployment, CICD, you understand just like the weirdness of how computers talk to each other, like distributed systems, all of that is so valuable for cybersecurity. And I promise you the cybersecurity part isn't as hard as you think. I know there's a lot of gatekeeping, but really if you just think about like, okay, if I were being really crafty, like how would I navigate the system that you know I'm currently helping make reliable? Like how would I disrupt that reliability? You're gonna go a long way in thinking how attackers think. Um, and again, if you think about it very much like, how do we just make sure that the system behaves as intended? You're going to cut off the paths that attackers would naturally gravitate towards. I'd really like to thank Kelly Shortridge for coming on the show and talking about her presentation at Black Hat USA 2023 and her book, Security Chaos Engineering, Sustaining Resilience in Software and Systems. Available from O'Reilly, at Amazon, or wherever you get your books. Evolving our software development to be more nimble and agile is going to take time and a paradigm shift. Given the alternative, we've got to get started today. So, I anticipate we'll be hearing more from Kelly in the near future. You can read her blogs or find out where she's speaking next at kellyshortridge.com. Hey, if you enjoy this podcast tell a friend. I bet there are others who like commercial-free narrative infosec podcasts. I have so many stories about hackers who are making a positive difference in the world. And be sure to check out Error Code, my new podcast that focuses on IoT and embedded security. Error Code is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Let's keep this conversation going. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon
and tell me what you like and even what you don't. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure, the makers of Mayhem, an application security testing solution you can try for free at mayhem.security. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Robert Famosi. <laughs>